we're beginning a 16-week sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark. If you were with us in 2020, you know that we spent the entire year working our way through the Old Testament. And this year, we're going to work our way through the entire New Testament. But we're actually going to spend 16 weeks looking very specifically at the Gospel of John. And so we're going to spend time in every single book of our New Testament this year in 2021. But we have to start with the most important person, which is Jesus himself. And Mark, almost everyone believes now that Mark was actually the first gospel account written. It's the shortest gospel account. It's only 16 chapters. Mark writes very quickly. Catherine just read for us and she used the word immediately. That is a word that Mark uses throughout his gospel. Because Mark is moving very quickly from one scene to the next scene. Now, why would he do this? Well, we know that historically speaking, Mark's gospel is written in the late 60s AD. And this is the period when Emperor Nero in Rome is unleashing massive persecution against Christians. There was a great fire that broke out in Rome in 64 AD, and it was actually Nero's fault. But he actually blamed the Christians. And so massive persecution is taking place. And Mark is writing his gospel in this context of believers experiencing, many for the first time, intense persecution. And so he writes quickly because he is trying to get the information down on paper as quickly as possible before this first generation of believers passes on. And so this is what we are going to be studying over the next 16 weeks the gospel of Mark. Matthew and Luke borrow extensively from Mark as a source. And so this is about 30 to 35 years after Jesus has been ascended back into heaven at the right hand of his father. And Mark is writing this account for us today to remind us that in the same way the suffering servant Jesus experienced persecution Followers of Jesus in the first century and followers of Jesus in the 21st century can expect persecution as well. And Mark's gospel is divided into two large sections. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 8, verse 26. And then chapter 8, verse 27, until the end of the book. Chapters 1 through 8 focus mainly on Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. But at verse 27 of chapter 8, through the end of the book, Mark focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where he will experience death, burial, and then ultimately resurrection. So over half of Mark's gospel is focusing on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to die the death for all of humanity. And so I want to point out to you three observations from the text that Catherine read to us this morning. Number one, we see the definition of the gospel. Now we've already established in the introduction that Mark did not waste any time getting to the point of his gospel. Notice what is not in Mark's gospel that is in other gospel accounts. We don't have the birth of Christ. We don't have the genealogy of Jesus. We don't have the wise men and the shepherd. And this is intentional because if you are trying to get down information as quickly as possible, there are just some details that you have to omit. 
And so Mark gets straight to the crux of his message. And he says it in the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel. That is the most important thing that Mark cares about. And so he wastes no time getting to the crux of the issue. What is the gospel? This is the same question that me and you have to answer every single day as followers of Jesus. What is the gospel? And before we answer what it is, let's talk about what it's not. The gospel is not church attendance. The gospel is not being a member of a church. The gospel is not baptism. The gospel is not being a good person. The gospel is not giving your money away. The gospel is so much more glorious than any of those things. That we as human beings have a proper understanding of what the gospel means and what it means to us on a daily basis. Here's the formal definition that I want us to use as we work our way through Mark's gospel. Here's the definition. The just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. Let's unpack this definition. Number one, everything God made was good. Even Adam and Eve, he created good. They were the ones who sinned. They were the ones who sinned initially, and now all of humanity, as a result of Adam and Eve's decision to eat of the fruit that God told them not to, you and me have inherited the sin nature that began in Adam and Eve. But God looked upon us in spite of that sin, and he said, I'm still going to pursue humanity. I still desire to have a relationship so he sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to experience the death that you and me deserve for our sin. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that he died in our place. Because of our sin, you and me are the ones that deserve to bear the wrath of God. But Jesus stepped in in our place and bore the wrath of God for our sin. Not his sin. He was perfect. He was blameless. He was completely innocent. And he died as our substitute. And in his resurrection, three days later, he conquered sin and he conquered death. Therefore, anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ will one day be free from the presence of sin and will be able to defeat spiritual death and be reconciled to God forever. That is the gospel. It has nothing to do with ritualistic religion that unfortunately so many of us lean on. The biblical gospel is vastly different from what the world teaches about the nature of the self. Here's what the world teaches us about the self. At your core, you're a good person. You're good. It's just you've made some mistakes. 
And so how you learn from those mistakes is you just work harder to be the better version of yourself. And the ultimate goal of life is to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. And that sounds really nice on paper. It sounds really good if you're giving a motivational talk. But just understand, it is not biblical. The Bible does not teach, I hate to hurt your feelings, that we're good at the core. We're not. We are not good. We have inherited this sin nature from Adam and Eve and left to our own devices. We will continue to screw it up more and more. Something outside of us has to come in and change us. The world calls them mistakes. The Bible calls them sins. Sin separates us from God. Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, You were dead in the trespasses and sins that you once walked in. A dead person cannot bring a dead person back to life. I know that's an earth-shattering statement. Let me say it again. A dead person cannot bring a dead person back to life. Paul tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so, you cannot bring yourself from darkness to light because you are dead. But Jesus stepped in. He is life. He is the light of the world. He brings us from darkness to light, and he brings us from death to life. This is what John tells us in his gospel. So we repent of our sin, and we're going to talk more about what that means in a moment. And through the Spirit's power, we are made alive in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The only way that you can go from death to life is trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your behalf. The gospel focuses on what God has done for us. We are not the center of the gospel message. God is the center of the gospel message. Left to our own devices, we will continue to screw up. But fortunately for us, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus as God in the flesh to die the death that we deserve. That is the proper definition of the gospel, that God loves sinners and that he sent Jesus to die for them. Number two in this passage, we see a messenger of the gospel very quickly into Mark's gospel. He takes us back to the Old Testament. If you were with us last year, we always tried to connect the dots to show you that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And so as Mark begins his gospel, in the very beginning, he takes us back to the Old Testament to show us that all of the prophecies pointing to the Messiah are now fulfilled. Mark references three different Old Testament passages here. Exodus 23, 20. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. And that is the one that he quotes in its entirety. Now Isaiah 40 through 55 is explaining to you the Exodus experience 
of the Israelites. They had experienced exodus from Egypt where they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And Moses comes and God rescues them. Later on, they are taken into Babylonian captivity. And God, once again, rescues them from this Babylonian captivity. And so we have, in Isaiah 40 to 55, these examples of two exodus experiences for the Israelites. Why would Mark include those? Because the Jewish people that he is writing to need to understand that ultimately they are unable to live the way that God desires for them to live on their own. They couldn't live by Yahweh's standards to get out of Egypt. God had to deliver them himself. They couldn't live according to Cyrus. God had to come and allow them back into Jerusalem. Jesus is the one that the Jewish people need to follow to experience true exodus from sin. Jesus is the shepherd that the Jewish people need to follow. He is the one who will provide food in the desert. He is the one who will heal the deaf, the blind, and the lame. And John, right here in Mark's gospel, is the one that God chooses to go and prepare the way for Jesus' coming, telling them that they need to be ready for what is about to happen. Prepare your hearts John says, turn from your sin and be baptized as an outward sign of what God is doing in your life. Notice what John focuses on when he goes to the crowds and he's teaching them about what is necessary. He teaches them about the significance of the heart. Not the significance of ritual. The Jewish people of the day were excellent at keeping the religious rituals. They were excellent at attending worship. They were excellent at pontificating matters within the law. They were excellent at making sacrifices. But what John is saying is, that is not what makes you right with Jesus. Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 7, which we will study in a few weeks, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees and the scribes. And here is what he says about their hearts. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. John's message is not one of religious ritual, but rather repentance of sin. Yes, John comes and he baptizes people as an external sign of what God has been doing in the hearts of the people. Brothers and sisters, hear me very clearly this morning. An allegiance to religious ritual will send you to hell just as quickly as being an atheist. Religious ritual does not save Only through heart change are we made right with God. Your devotion to religious ritual is only as effective to the extent that you have repented of your sin, that you have turned from your sin and are choosing to follow after Jesus to help you overcome the flesh. Trusting 
in the finished work of Christ on the cross is at the essence of what Mark is teaching in his gospel. It is at the essence of what Matthew and Luke and John are teaching in their gospels. It is not about ritual. It is about a heart being transformed through the Spirit of God. Now notice the description that Mark gives us of John. Let's just be honest. We would not hang out with John if he were alive today. Okay? He wears camel's hair. He eats locusts. We're not talking like a fly. We're talking a locust. Have you seen a locust? That's a big bug. So this isn't just like him swallowing a worm or eating a cricket on a dare. He ate locusts. And yet God chooses John to come and prepare the way for Jesus to come on the scene. God's ways are not our ways. If we were going to create a following today, if I were to have shown up in camel's hair and with a locust hanging halfway out of my mouth, I'm pretty sure none of you would want to stay for the rest of the service. And yet what we see in Mark's gospel is that people from all over Judea flocked to hear this man speak. Now, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's possible when God convicts hearts. Because when God convicts hearts, the messenger is not nearly as important as the message. And so John comes on the scene eating bugs, dressed in camel's hair, probably not the most popular guy. I'm doubting John had just a super popular friend group. He lived in the wilderness. He ate bugs. And yet people come to hear what he say, and the text tells us that they repent of their sins and they are baptized. The message that John shared with the Jewish people of the day was utterly life-changing. A messenger of the gospel doesn't just have to be the preacher up on the stage. It can be you in your neighborhood, in your place of employment, with your family members, and with your friends. You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have the exact same message that John had over 2,000 years ago. Now, I wouldn't suggest that you eat locusts as you share the gospel with your friends. But nevertheless, the message is the same. And then we see number three, the proper response to the gospel. As we kept reading at the beginning of chapter one, Jesus is baptized himself by John in the Jordan River. Why is Jesus baptized? He has no sin He didn't need to repent. He's setting the example for all that will come after him. The reason you and me are baptized today is because Jesus sets the example. The reason we are baptized by immersion as Baptists is because that is the way that Jesus himself was baptized. And it is our desire to imitate him in every way that we can. So Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, and then he is taken away into the wilderness to experience temptation for 40 days. 
Jesus experienced temptation the way you and me experienced temptation. Jesus experienced baptism the way that you and me experienced baptism. The only difference is that when he experienced temptation, he succeeded perfectly for 40 days as Satan was trying to get him to use his power in ways that would not honor God We learn in some other gospel accounts the specific methods that Satan used to try to get Jesus to sin. And every time he did it, Jesus passed the test. Jesus is able to sympathize with you in your temptation up to the point when you actually sin. And his baptism is a model for all of us as an external sign of the internal work that God has done in our hearts through his spirit. And the very first words we hear from Jesus, in the very first gospel account that we have written, this is what Jesus says. The first words that come out of his mouth are recorded in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's unpack what Jesus is saying here. The time is fulfilled. In other words, the Jewish people of the day, all of the prophecies that you have read about the Messiah in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Amos and Joel, I'm right here. All of these prophecies are about me. The time has been fulfilled. I am here. Number two, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we know a lot about the kingdom of God. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God in the gospels. And there are two aspects to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was ushered in when Jesus began his ministry. There's an already and not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, but it will be fully complete when he returns one day to usher in his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was on the scene in that moment. We are living in the age between Jesus's initial coming and his second coming when he will take the church to be with him forever. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Here's what repentance is not. It is not acknowledging that you've sinned. It is not confessing that you have sinned. It is not making a conscious decision to stop sinning. It is not turning from one sin only to turn to another sin. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. Thomas Watson, it's probably the book that I've quoted the most since I've been here. In his great little book, The Doctrine of Repentance, says this, A man may restrain the open acts of sin, yet not turn from sin in a right manner. Acts of sin may be restrained out of fear, or design, but a true penitent turns from sin 
out of a pious principle, namely out of love for God. And then he goes on to say this, turning from sin is like pulling the arrow out of the wound. Turning to God is like pouring in the balm. It's not enough to simply make a conscious decision that I'm no longer going to be a bad person. That is what we call behavior modification. And if you simply have enough discipline, anyone can modify their behavior. Did you know that since I had COVID, I've gone from 10 Oreos a night to zero? That's not repentance. That's simply behavior modification. We can just make the conscious effort that we're no longer going to eat this food or that food. We can make the conscious decision that we're no longer going to get mad when somebody cuts us off in traffic. And all of those decisions can be made apart from turning to God as a result. Repentance is when you turn from your sin and you turn towards God through his spirit to give you the power to overcome sin. And then number four, Jesus says, most importantly, believe in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. Intellectually, yes, but also in your heart. Trust that what Jesus did for you on the cross is the only thing that will make you right with God. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor and author, wrote a short, literal, 120-page book that's called The Gospel. And one thing that he points out in that book that is so insightful is he says this, The gospel never does nothing. The gospel never leaves us exactly the same. When we hear the gospel, there are only one of two responses. Our hearts continue to harden or they continue to soften towards sin. I'm afraid that many of us view the gospel as a one-time decision that we made rather than understanding that every single day that we are following after Jesus, we should be learning more about the gospel. We should be more aware of our sin and our need to trust in what Jesus has done for us. We never get over the gospel. We never fully grasp in our hearts and in our minds the beauty of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sin. Now, yes, it's a one-time decision, but the process of sanctification, the process of truly understand what the gospel is doesn't just end when we make the decision to follow after Jesus. That is the beginning. Every single day when I read the word of God, and I get down on my knees to pray, I'm reminded that I am a hopelessly sinful individual and that I am in need of forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's not just something that I realized when I was 14 and I made the decision to follow after Jesus. That's something that I realize every day. The gospel never leaves us the same it always moves us. It either continues to harden our hearts if we resist it, or it continues to soften our hearts 
as we learn more and more about the glorious beauty of what Jesus accomplished for us. So the question that is posed to us today comes directly from Jesus' own words. Have you repented of your sin and believed the gospel? Do you realize that your sin demands a verdict? There is no mistrial when it comes to our sin. Everyone will be declared innocent or guilty. We will be declared innocent if we have trusted in Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of himself in us through Jesus. But if anyone here has not made that decision to turn from their sin and turn to God, when God sees us, he declares us guilty with a sentence of eternal punishment apart from God forever. That is the message of the gospel. So I beg of you, those in the room, those watching at home, have you repented and believed in the gospel? If you haven't, do it today. J.I. Packer, great theologian that we just lost in 2020, talks about adoption into the family of God as the most important aspect of what it means to follow after Jesus. Here's what he says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. When you are adopted into the family of God, he accepts you as you are. He takes you with your sins and your shortcomings and your flaws. And he says, I love you anyways. I sent Jesus because I love you. Do not neglect the gospel. Do not continue to be a spiritual orphan. Make the decision today to come and be adopted into the family of God and you will spend eternity with God forever. That is the message of the gospel. As Mark begins his gospel account, he wants all of his readers in 69 AD and in 2021 to understand that there is nothing more important than understanding what the gospel is. And that is that Jesus loves sinners and he desires a relationship with them. Let's pray. God, we are so excited to be able to go through this gospel together, to learn more about what it means to follow after you, to learn what it means to properly understand the gospel. God, if there is anyone here today who after hearing this message wants to follow after Jesus, I pray today that they will make that decision, that they will acknowledge that they are a sinner that they would turn from their sin and turn to God and that they would trust that the finished work of Jesus on the cross for their sin is the only thing that will make them right with God. And if they believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection, they can be made right and they can be declared innocent before God one day. And then God, for the rest of us in this room who have already made that decision, the gospel always changes us. It never leaves us the same. So as we sing in just a moment, 
Perhaps we, that leads to a time of, of confession of sin. Perhaps it leads to a time of praising you for your grace and your mercy that we do not deserve. Perhaps it leads us into a time of meditation upon what Jesus himself experienced on the cross for us. But we know that after hearing the words of Scripture today, that the gospel never does nothing. So change us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.